Water's Edge podcast acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout the Murray-Darling Basin and Australia and recognises the continuing connection to lands, waters and community. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to the Elders past, present and emerging. Coming up, how and why the role of the Inspector General of Water Compliance was established. People in the lower part of the basin thought that there was too much floodplain harvesting going on in the north and it was denying them opportunities in the, in the south. The challenges faced along the way. Um, so to simply focus on the Queensland end or the New South Wales end wasn't going to help South Australia or Victoria or the ACT. And where things are headed now. We know the government's backing the Inspector General and the work we're doing. The states have never been more cooperative through the Regulatory Leaders Forum that we've established, the first time they've ever been brought together. I'm your host, Annabel Hudson. This is Water's Edge, and welcome to The Conversation. On the 1st of October 2019, former Australian Federal Police Commissioner Mick Kelty AO was appointed as the Interim Inspector General of the Murray-Darling Basin Water Resources for a period of 12 months. It followed his role as the Northern Basin Commissioner. Mr Kelty was appointed to this position to help create new laws under the 2007 Water Act to create a permanent statutory position. In August 2021, the role of the Inspector General of Water Compliance was officially filled by Troy Grant after Mr Kelty decided not to continue in the role. I'm very excited to introduce Mick Kelty to our Water's Edge listeners today to hear firsthand about the establishment of the Inspector General of Water Compliance and some of the challenges he faced in that position. Also joining us is the Inspector General himself, Troy Grant, to chat about where we are now and how the transition occurred. Welcome to you both. Thanks, Annabelle. Thanks, Annabelle. Well, we might um, get straight into it. So Mick, we'll go back to the start where it all began. How did you get to be in the role of Interim Inspector General of Murray-Darling Basin Resources? Well, prior to the... Um, creation of the Inspector General's role, there'd been uh, a Four Corners program um, highlighting the need for better compliance um, and highlighting anomalies uh, about water legislation across different jurisdictions. So for those familiar with the Murray-Darling Basin, you've got the jurisdictions of New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia and the ACT. Um, And what it Uh, what the program did or the Four Corners program did was to highlight the fact that there were because there were jurisdictional differences there were different compliance regimes in place. New South Wales for example um, changed its Water Act. Um, It uh, in changing the Water Act uh, had allowed any changes that had been done for things like um, floodplain harvesting uh, on properties. Um, any, any changes that have been done were basically approved from the date of that new legislation. That created animosity uh, in the lower parts of the basement, basin because people in the lower part of the basin thought that there was too much floodplain harvesting going on in the north and it was denying them opportunities in the, in the south. And by the time you got to places like Burke and Bawarana, um, you know, People were in drought and not getting any of the water that was coming into the north of the basin. So 
The original position was created when um, Tony Burke, Federal Labor uh, Shadow Minister at the time, approached David Littleproud, the Federal Minister at the time, and asked whether I would um, look at the Northern Basin uh, and become Commissioner of the Northern Basin. So for 12 months uh, in 2018 to 2019, I looked solely at the the Northern Basin and um, uh, worked around the Northern Basin and um, uh, without legislation, tried to establish what was going on. Uh, The Queensland Police had initiated a prosecution in the Northern Basin uh, uh, that was before the courts for um, making adjustments to a particular property that where water was channeled uh, or saved onto that property and denied to properties downstream. So it highlighted a lot of deficiency in, in policy as well as practice. What progressed to having coverage over the entire basin? At what point did that happen? So there is a a Water Minister's Council and uh, each of the jurisdictions are represented on the Water Minister's Council. I wrote a report on the Northern Basin and on the things that I discovered on the Northern Basin with recommendations as to what should occur in the Northern Basin. But of course, um, one of the things that my report highlighted is that the Murray-Darling Basin is not jurisdictional. It's a national Mm -hmm. asset. Um, So to simply focus on the Queensland end or the New South Wales end wasn't going to help South Australia or Victoria or the ACT. So um, it it focused the Ministerial Council's mind on the fact that they needed a, a basin-wide... Basin-wide approach. Policy, yeah. yeah. And so uh, the, the council itself, the ministers themselves, um, led by Niall Blair, I think, from New South Wales, if I recall correctly... Uh, they championed a, a, a nationwide uh, or a basin-wide position of Inspector General and David Littleproud, who was the then Federal Minister, approached me as to whether I would convert from Northern Basin Commissioner to Interim Inspector General of the Murray-Darling Basin. Now that title, Interim Inspector General, does that insinuate or I guess imply that you didn't have any legislative functions or uh, ability to you know, make those sort of legislative um, calls exactly, and and that was one of the things that I highlighted in the Northern Basin Commission's report that I'd done it with the cooperation of farmers and graziers as well as departmental uh, officers, and in fact, uh, it highlighted the Northern Basin Commission's report highlighted the fact that um, departmental officers in Queensland were instructed, in fact, not to cooperate with me, and I had no powers to compel them to um, speak to me. So. Uh, to have an interim inspector general's role was to allow the work to continue but to get the legislation and policy to catch up and give the position powers. So would you say that, so you had spent, you know, the first 12 months in the role and then you decided not to continue in the role. Is that because of issues in terms of legislation or why did you decide? Because I think a lot of people were quite shocked when you decided that you didn't want to continue in the role. Well, the the, the problem we had was that um, we were 12 months down the track. For me, it was two years since I'd started the Northern Basin Commissioner's role and we still had no signs of any legislation. Um, I was working out of a little office in Brisbane, um, travelling the, the Murray-Darling Basin, 
I really only had one other member of staff based in Canberra, um, and and so it wasn't uh, resourced, nor was it given legislation. And I was also at the same time with with the uh, approval of the ministers, um, uh, the, uh, the the ministers involved. I was also doing bushfire inquiries, and I'd I'd done the twenty twenty um, bushfire inquiry for the South Australian government. I'd helped. Um, uh, write the terms of the reference for the Royal Commission into the the 2020 bushfires that um, were conducted as a national Royal Commission. Uh, so I'd also had a lot of other demands on my time, and because this had no legislative legislation legislation or legislative background backing, nor did it have proper resourcing, um, I just felt it was time to to move on and 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 focus on other work because. You know, in the absence of legislation, in the absence of proper resourcing, you know, we, we were really only playing at the edges. Uh, and the ministerial council itself um, was pretty dysfunctional. I mean, they'd have a, a ministerial council meeting and then it'd almost be a race to the microphone to see each minister from each jurisdiction um, talk about their position on, on, on water and their position on the Murray-Darling Basin, which was of no assistance whatsoever to the people on the ground, the farmers, the graziers, the people whose livelihoods, who generations of livelihoods have been devoted to you know, producing what is the food bowl of Australia. Absolutely. And then, so then we'll cue Troy Grant coming in. So how did you end up in the role of the Inspector General of Water Compliance? Yeah, so I uh, just received the call pretty much out of the blue. Um, from Minister Keith Pitt's office at the time, one of his staffers, um, canvassing my interest on a scale of one, two or three uh, to take up the role and I was a bit confused because I knew Mick, um, I've known him for a number of years and I knew he was in the role and uh, they told me that he was finishing up and uh, they just gauged my interest of no way, Jose. Uh, Yeah, I'll think about it all, absolutely. And I took option two that I'd think about it and um, then not long later I got a phone call from Mick to give me the heads up that he'd nominated me for the <laughs> role. So the phone calls weren't too qu- late there, Mick. <laughs> the phone calls weren't quite in sequence, but uh, uh, because I'd, um, I'd known Mick, I'd, I took an interest in the work that he was undertaking and he was very kind in his recommendations and when I was appointed as the Interim Inspector General, he articulated why he made those recommendations because I had come from the basin, I'd lived 40 years there, I had a legislative um, base of experience, um, not only applying law uh, in my role as a police officer, but as a legislator, crafting law, crafting policy, uh, understood government, um, had been on ministerial councils as a minister, so I understood how it worked. Country boy, so I guess um, I was really um, blessed that Mick thought so highly to uh, make the recommendation to the minister at the time, and after giving it uh, a lot of consideration, because uh, I'd, you know, couple of years out of politics I, I had no interest in getting back into the political fray mm. and I think Mick's point is a really good one that um, there was a, a period of time where there was a real optimism uh, about basin plan and water management across the Murray-Darling going forward. We had Niall Blair, I think Mick would attest was a real champion, I think Lisa Neville in Victoria was yes. similarly. Yeah. A very good champion at the time and then as often happens with all governments you know there's portfolio changes so you get a different cohort and yeah so 
I reluctantly agreed, um, more on the basis that I could see how the role wasn't political, how Mick had framed it and built it with the Minister. It wasn't to play in the policy development space. It was to be a problem-solving role backed up by powers, and there was a frustrating period about getting those powers. So Mick had a journey of some two years. Mm. Uh, I had an eight-month journey on top of that still. So it was a long time before the legislation came to fruition on the 5th of August. And despite that being a wonderful thing, we're now going through a process still identifying more legislative gaps and policy well, gaps. Do you do you think that there is room for more legislative, um, I guess, powers for the Inspector General? Oh, absolutely. And look, um, we're really looking forward to the Labor government um, during the campaign made a commitment to do a review of the Inspector General after a 12-month period um, to make sure that we had the adequate powers and resources uh, that we required to do the job. So we're really looking forward to contributing to that review, which is about to get underway. And it will be telling because there's two similar stories here, and this really speaks about the culture or the genesis of the what's wrong with the Basin Plan is that it's always been built on compromise. So the legislation and the plan itself is compromised in its framework and its structure in order to appease those that not necessarily agree with it. So there's all these gaps or get-out clauses or ways that people can escape accountability or aren't held to proper scrutiny. So what has happened on a lot of occasions is administrative arrangements have been put in place to overcome these gaps, which have been well intended, but they're not enforceable. Mm. So it's a case of this review will give us the chance that uh, we will hopefully put to the Minister a sensible way forward to tweak the Act. It doesn't need a complete overhaul, it just needs some tweaking to fill those gaps. And things that are currently measured or required or are onerous on a state to do within the plan, some of those are a bit redundant. So they could be taken out that would take away the need for too many of these administrative arrangements that just complicate things really that have no enforceability and effectively is the reason why New South Wales have been able to um, not submit any water resource plans for over a decade. They had seven years to do it, they're three years over because the legislation didn't envisage when it was built that a state wouldn't, wouldn't submit have had submitted plans. plans that would be accreditable within that time period. No one thought that was possible, but we're living that reality Here today. Here we are today, that's right. I might jump back a little bit. Um, so, Mick, when you started in the role, I think you had two people working. Uh, and now we're up to, I think, about 50, Troy. Is that, I think that's about where we are. Yep. So... At the start, how did you gather intelligence and gather information and what issues were affecting the basin? That's a really good question, Annabelle. So I travelled the basin um, far and wide and I held town hall meetings and I think um, it came to a head when there was a demonstration in Canberra. There were several thousand people came to Canberra and blockaded Parliament House in Canberra. That was the... Ban the, can the plan, can the plan. Or something like that. I met with those people and um, and brokered a meeting with the minister at the time, and it it wasn't actually the plan that was the problem. It, it, it's actually exactly what what Troy's just saying. It's there are aspects and it's it's the administrative arrangements and the leaning in to 
to actually favour one outcome over another. And you can't, it's like a balloon, if you depress one side, it's going to have an impact on another side. Um, and so the ministerial council really wasn't working. When I said it was dysfunctional, it was absolutely dysfunctional. Um, and it was only when you had the Lisa Nevilles and the Niall Blairs who actually got this and got behind it and understood on the back of the Four Corners story that there was no metering, there was no compliance, there was no checking of what was going on. Um, so I think one of the things that um, uh, I tried to do was to hear from the people themselves, um, w w the farmers themselves, like th things like dairy farmers in Victoria uh, who'd come over from New Zealand didn't understand that they couldn't buy into this market. They thought they were buying a dairy farm. They didn't realise they had to buy a water licence as well. Separate to the farm, yeah. Uh, they'd never experienced that in, in, in New Zealand. And um, when you started to see livelihoods being impacted and business decisions being impacted by poor policy, you know, it, it was crying out for you know, some, some action, which, which is what the, um, the review that we did on the impact of low inflows. Remember that when I was commissioned to do this work, it was in drought. Mm. We're in serious drought. Um, and um, so some, there were some big things that came out of the drought, apart from the impact on the economy and impact on productivity. We learned very quickly that the Indigenous communities were totally left out of the plan, totally left out of the Water Act, totally left out of the considerations going back to 1915 when the, our forefathers decided that they needed to do a, have a plan around water. Absolutely. And I'd be kind of, I'd be keen to know, Troy, how the issues have evolved or, you know, are they, are they any different to what Mick was experiencing in, in his time as the Interim Inspector General? Yeah, look, it's, it's a great question. And uh, what Mick did without the resourcing uh, in that short period of time in reality because you know the basin plan politics and the issues have been around for donkeys what he was able to articulate in easy to digest um, language and the reports that he wrote just took us massive steps forward um, particularly in relation to the inflows report because the first thing that that really identified was at the heart of the problems was the misconceptions or the myths around water. Uh, and that report really highlighted about the quantum of water that flowed from the Darling into the Murray. And there was, you know, Southern Basin expectations, understanding, belief, believed it in their hearts that a far greater amount of water flew, uh, flowed from the Darling into the Murray and then anything activity-wise northern basin was only depriving the Murray in the southern systems of their water. So there was a lot of um, the starting of the debunking of the myths, which was is the cornerstone of um, our community engagement um, policy, our strategy in, in the IG office now. That's a really important thing because if you have these myths out there and running to people's agendas, people would get out there and get on a soapbox and just say, this is so, and there was no one to challenge that. There was no independent voice to challenge that myth. Mick was the first one to do that, and that's legacy one that's been laid out. Legacy two is the fact that he was independent f first and foremost and was able to demonstrate that by calling things out in the first instance without power and did it very skillfully because, you know, it, it takes uh, a lot of courage to be able to speak out when you're not backed up by legislation. And 
the basin communities reacted to that. They immediately said, we're sick of people marking their own homework, which is what was happening at a Commonwealth level and at a state level as well. Um, and the compliance component at that time sat within the MDBA, uh, the Office of Compliance that now sits with So they me. were essentially overseeing their own compliance? Yeah, and this is not disparaging any way. This is just from a, if you look at it from a governance principle point of view, how do you structurally have an organisation um, without better frameworks legislatively wise, like the police do it with internal investigations, but they are oversighted by oversight bodies. So they have a very rigid internal inquiries or IA uh, component, a lot of police forces. So they're able to do that because they've got this oversight component. The MDBA had the responsibility of oversighting a lot of their own work as well as oversighting the states. And the state jurisdictions fund about 60% of the MDBA's budget. So if you're looking at it from a very principal point of view, you know, and, and, great. and I'm not remotely saying that any of, you know, maladministration, mm. misfeasance was occurred, but it just doesn't give any confidence to the community that the, the job's being assessed or properly oversighted or checked. So the checks and balances were just on their basis could be challenged. And I think the community embraced the uh, idea and concept of uh, independent voice. Mick immediately got people's confidence by being accessible out in the basin. His independent reports where he started calling stuff out. So that gave us legacy number two. Uh, and, the, and the third legacy uh, really was the fact that um, his departure, because of his frustrations with the lack of legislation, got the legislation kicked on. Mm. It gave it a bit of an acceleration. And whilst it's not perfect yet, and nothing ever is when you roll out a first model of a new vehicle, you know, it might take a couple of incarnations to get it to as good a vehicle as it can be, our legislation and our framework uh, is similar. It needs to be updated and, you know, it's... It's, it's always constantly evolving. evolving. It's, a, it's a life document. It's not something that sits on the shelf. It's a work in progress constantly and needs review, needs change, like all laws do mm. and procedures. And... We've made some seismic steps because the, the frustrations mix articulated Ministerial Council. I went to the last Ministerial Council and whilst they didn't get outcomes from a policy area, which isn't my space, just the dynamic in the room was very different to the hostile, dysfunctional uh, dynamic Mick was faced with. So that's a step forward. There was a fairly... Um I'm going to say robust report from a prominent research group. Um, I'm not going to name names in 2019 that made some significant claims about major controversies that have been widely reported across all media outlets. And I want to get to the bottom of something um, now that I have you both in the room. How did you and how do you decide what needs investigating or review? Um, and, and how did you decide the scope of that? Is it, is it based on what you're being told by field officers, Troy, and, and is it based on evidence or is it based on rumours um, or media reports? Well, Mick didn't have those powers, I guess, that he could refer if um, things were provided to him. It was probably more an anecdotal um, piece of information he would pass on to the state regulators because they're the only ones that had the jurisdiction at that stage. So very different to what we can do. Mm. We still have those arrangements. Um, the state still... Um, There's obviously certain things that you can't 
have... Yeah, the, the, the Act says very clearly that they're the first regulator mm -hmm. and we have step-in capability uh, and there's a process that goes around that. But so far as what we investigate, there's certain things that are carved out of our legislation that aren't our space to delve into. So when we're re reported issues in that, then we refer them to the appropriate authorities and then we oversight that referral. Matters that are referred to us directly that fall within our jurisdiction, uh, we have a, a triage system to work out whether they constitute investigation under our investigative powers, under our powers of oversight, or whether they're an issue that we can investigate by utilising our powers of inquiry. And they come with a significant compelling powers, which Mick identified earlier in the podcast that he just simply couldn't compel any information. But we have that power, and it's an enormous power. Mm. You, you use it... Um, scarcely or you don't overuse it for what a better word the best way to get information as Mick um, also had to rely on uh, was to co have cooperation and have that's good why relationships good relationships and and we often get referred to I know Mick was too and whether it's because we're both former police officers that we were the the cop on the new water cops or the, the cop on the water beat type thing mm -hmm. um, and there's some parallels there but the reality is our job is to have the big stick when it's required and call things out, but it's also to identify what's going well, what's going good, acknowledge and recognise that and give um, proper credence and highlight that as well, which is, is what we're doing. So um, and, and we, we do both those both of those roles. So from to, to go to the answer, it depends on how it comes to us, whether it's captured by our legislation or not, and or then when it fits within the three categories of our legislation for us to act on. And we're now resourced with specialists in those areas to do that. Uh, the, the most uh, number of investigations that we carry out um, by way of either referral and or uh, that are proactively done by our team is uh, water trade and, and price reporting at the moment. I think we've got currently around 70 odd investigations in that subject matter alone. And uh, there's some with a bit broader scope of our legislation, would quickly drag in some other opportunities for us to investigate. So, Did you find that as well, Mick? Tra water trade was a bit of a, an area of concern that people were bringing to you, or was it water management in general that you were sort of faced with? Uh, no, water trade, water trade was a, um, <clears throat> a major issue. One of the things that I highlighted in the Northern Basin Commissioner's report was foreign investment in water was not... Um, examined or oversighted by the Foreign Investment Review Board and the Treasurer at the time picked up on that and um, so I had a meeting with the Foreign Investment Review Board and tried to get them to look at water at the same way as we look at other valuable commodities that foreign investment was looking at. Um, that was basically on the back of water trading that once water trading started and the people saw the value of water um, the, the the issue that became um, apparent very quickly was that there was no regulatory authority it wasn't like they were reporting to ASIC the Australian Securities Investment Commission it wasn't like they were reporting to the Foreign Investment Review Board it was just just happening uh, and it was ungoverned um, and it was basically entrepreneurial in its nature so if someone wanted water uh, in one part of the basin when when someone needed water 
Uh, it was a cooperative arrangement in some cases, but in other cases, uh, the, and of course in drought, the value of water goes through the roof. Mm. Um, so this commodity was being traded ungoverned and unregulated. Um, so uh, it became really important to highlight that and say, it's okay, and I think it was done under the Turnbull government from memory, or when Turnbull was minister, um, minister responsible. Um, it, it was a good idea, but it, it didn't come with the rest of it. It's kind of like what Troy just said about the MDBA. It was a great idea to create the Murray-Darling Basin Authority and a great idea to put compliance in there, but as time evolved, they started to mark their own homeworks. That's not a good idea. Um, and so nobody had picked up on that. Um, and it's, I think it's... And this is, I think, one of the important things about the independence of the role, that because you're not not buying into the policy and you're not buying into the... um, uh, to delivering the policy in the way the departments are, you can stand back and have a look at the effectiveness of the policy, the way it's policed um, or complied with. Um, But also, I think the government didn't understand uh, fully the economic value of getting this right because not only was water trading an important economic um, policy but the whole production of the Murray-Darling Basin impacted by the drought at the time impacted the the price for example of of exporting to uh, imports and exports so the, 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 the balance of trade was impacted by the fact that we couldn't produce rice and export it we couldn't we couldn't get that foreign money in here for, for our exports. I think as another example of the, the power and effect that Mick had in that early period was the ACCC were then commissioned following that to do a report and they found systemic problems with the, the culture and the organisation and just the way that each of the state-based water trading entities were operating. There was no consistency, there was code of conduct type concerns and now we've moved to a federal roadmap in order to make some legislative changes so to have, correct have that. So have changes happened? Like, can the community that, be assured in, that it's all... That's all in progress at the moment. So the roadmap has been published and the uh, ACCC ourselves, as the Inspector General and the Bureau of Meteorology, are currently uh, working through a process about who will perform different functions in relation to water trade. There are specific water trading um, arrangements and rules within the Basin Plan currently that we look at and that relates around insider trading, trade price reporting, etc. Uh, so there's components there, and there's, but there's a whole lot of other data-related uh, information that the Bureau will have to take a big role in, uh, talking about legislative ability to set standards. We have that standard-setting ability within our current Act as well at the moment, and obviously the ACCC from... Uh, the consumer perspective, and uh, and they've got enormous capacity at ACCC as well. So between the three of us, uh, we'll get to a, a good landing spot to support the legislation that uh, will go through the Commonwealth Parliament in due course to, again, improve uh, the water trade system to overcome some of the legacy issues that uh, Mick identified that were established Well, it's certainly a very complex field and I could talk to you both all day about the history of the Inspector General and how we got to where we are, but sadly we are out of time. So if there's nothing else that you guys want to talk about or that we haven't covered? I'd I'd just like to say that uh, I think uh, the Basin and Australia more broadly will be indebted to Mick Kelty for what he did in those um, formative years. Uh, He really gave us a roadmap 
um, to take this very challenging, complex, controversial and contested Murray-Darling Basin space to uh, a better landing spot where there's transparency, there's going to be accountability and people will be able to ultimately have trust and confidence in it. And if you didn't do that work in the beginning, we'd be nowhere near it uh, within a very short space of time. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Troy. And um, you've done the hard yards. You've, you've got the resources, and that's one of the things that I failed to do. So uh, no, I've, I've got to say that this is a true and honest disclaimer that Mick rightly said during the majority of his tenure, uh, the basin was in significant and severe drought. The actual day that I got appointed as interim inspector general on the twentieth of December, twenty twenty, is when it started raining. So and hasn't stopped since. Yeah, it so. hasn't stopped since. I know. <laughs> so I've had a, I've had the advantage of um, yeah of plenty of water, which lowers the temperatures. But now's the time it, to prepare. Absolutely, yeah. and and that allows us to engage with people in a whole different level playing field. If they're coming at you hot and angry uh, because they're suffering all those pressures, yeah. the conversations you're having there are far different when you're talking about long-term improvements and how to get things better. So we've had that massive advantage of, of a wet period, which uh, can make all the difference. But the reality is our job is to always look at um, oversight is about risk to the system um, and our other components about the risks within the system. And, and that's fundamentally what our job's all about. Well, thank you both so much for your time. I've really enjoyed it. And hopefully our Waters Edge listeners have really enjoyed it too. Thanks for your time. Water's Edge is produced by the Inspector General of Water Compliance, Australian Government, Canberra. For more information, visit www.igwc.gov.au.